This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash youngchicago to download your free audiobook now. I also want to let you know about an upcoming program, Spirituality, Mysticism, and Mother Earth with eco-theologian and author Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox will spend two days with us in the Chicago area to benefit the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago on Friday, October 26th and Saturday, October 27th. For more information, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the Archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The Four Couples Within, The Structure of the Self and the Dynamics of Relationship, with Robert Moore, Ph.D. This episode is part one of the series, The Four Couples Within. The four archetypal couples inherent in the self, the king and queen, the warriors, the magicians, the lovers create four distinct psychosocial environments within a relationship. The archetypal dynamics underlying both fulfillment and frustration in human relationships are examined in this seminar recording, with particular focus on marital dynamics and sexual dysfunction. It was recorded in 1989. Robert Moore, PhD, was Distinguished Service Professor of Psychology, Psychoanalysis, and spirituality in the Graduate Center of the Chicago Theological Seminary, where he was the founding director of the New Institute for Advanced Studies in Spirituality and Wellness, an internationally recognized psychoanalyst and consultant in private practice in Chicago. He served as a training analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago and was director of research for the Institute for Integrative Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and the Chicago Center for Integrative Psychotherapy author and editor of numerous books in psychology and spirituality, he lectured internationally on his formulation of a neo-Jungian psychoanalysis and integrative psychotherapy. We'll have links in the show notes for the complete series and for all of Dr. Moore's lectures. Let me just say a word. I know you've been uh, imbibing Jungian thought now for some time. But let me just say a word about uh, uh, the context of our topic for today and, uh, and why I think it's an important topic, and then we will jump in. My plan really is for us to, to uh, examine what I would want you to think of as the geography of inner space this morning for lunch. Uh, the Jung, a Jungian way of thinking about the geography of inner space. And then after lunch, we will be try to look at practical applications with regard to relationships, uh, more generally, between men and women, and specifically sexual dysfunction and sexual therapy. Uh, for those of you that work in that area, you should say something to me about things that you're 
maybe at the breaks or at lunch, you should you should mention to me things that you're particularly interested in so that I can try to touch on it. And also feel free to raise your hand and interrupt me at any time uh, for a question of clarification because this is a lot of material to get in that, uh, in one uh, shot in one day, and we're just going to be hitting the high points. So if you feel confused, uh, it's not you. It's that there's uh, uh, overload, uh, information overload. So uh, feel free to interrupt, and, uh, and uh, we will try to clarify as we go. Um, let me just say a little bit about uh, Jungian thought. <clears throat> I'm not a Jungian because I don't know anything else, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people sometimes get that idea uh, about Jungians. Uh, I was an Adlerian psychoanalyst before I was a Jungian psychoanalyst, and my first book was a Freudian book. <laughs> and I have studied extensively at Freudian Institutes and uh, have had a lot of experience in, uh, in uh, extensive experience with Gestalt and other systems of thought. And I have taught comparative psychotherapeutic theory and therapies at the doctoral level for many years, more than I'd like to, to admit. So <clears throat> I am a Jungian because I think that it is far more adequate as a psychology of the human, the fullness of the human, than any other system far in the way. It is so far ahead superior to whatever is in second place, in my view, uh, that, uh, that uh, it merits all of the pain and suffering and money you have to spend to study it. <laughs> I won't get into that. But, uh, <clears throat> but one, of my, uh, one of my friends uh, uh, said to me this week, he was thinking, somebody asked him about why he was uh, uh, interested in Jungian, particularly Jungian perspective. He said, well, you know, the difference between the Jungian perspective, say, for example, a Freudian perspective, he says, you know, when you go to a Freudian, it's like a, this guy works in carpentry, and he said, it's like, you know, you go to a Freudian, and, and they come and inspect the house, and they point out all the places of dry rot, you know, and, and, the, and the really inadequate systems and the places where the bricks are coming loose and the foundation is weak and so forth and so on, and uh, tell you how much it's probably going to maybe cost to repair we can't be sure you know uh, <laughs> and he said uh, at least when you go to a Jungian that is a, at least I'm gonna make a distinction a minute between classical Jungians and so-called archetypal psychologists in my opinion but anyway if you go to a Jungian they have a a copy of the blueprints for the house and they can look at this and they can tell where the particular uh, structure was not built up to code <laughs> now this guy's a carpenter and I got thinking about him and I think my goodness these people with a good sensation function they can come up with such battery but then there's a lot to that especially if you if you really value Jung's own understanding and the sort of what I would consider a centrist Jungian point of view on these things that is to say uh, Jung's major contribution uh, in my view, was his understanding that there really is what he called an objective psyche. There is structure in the unconscious. And contrary to what the Freudian tradition came to emphasize, the unconscious is not merely a mass of chaotic confusion. Uh, it's not merely a bubbling cauldron of energy that has to be forcibly structured along the lines that the ego decides. Uh, on the contrary, the unconscious is structured, and it is structured in ways that anyone with an empirical bent can discover. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that people who have never studied any Jung 
like to say about Jung is that, that well, all of that, all that stuff about archetypes and all that stuff about uh, about uh, patterns, structures in the unconscious is just sort of mystical uh, gibberish. It's very interesting. Jung is very often accused of not being empirical, but it's amazing how few of his critics have ever bothered to look at the evidence for these kinds of structures in the human psyche. The evidence is all over the place, a lot of it cultural, historical, uh, religious, and so forth, uh, but it is evidence of configurations that recur in the psyche and its productions. So uh, uh, let me make one little distinction here. There are people today that call themselves, uh, following James Hillman and so forth, archetypal psychologists who, who focus on the image and focus on uh, 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 images and dreams and so forth, but do not emphasize the deep structures in the psyche. There's a big controversy within the Jungian community about this. And you probably have heard some of that, some different perspectives during your studies of Jungian thought. In my view, uh, when you de-emphasize the deep structures, you are no longer Jungian. Because, because in my view, James Hillman is, the, is probably the most brilliant Adlerian psychologist that I know. <laughs> and if you've ever studied Adler, you know that Adler didn't believe there was a structured unconscious. But he believed that all the fantasy productions were, were fictions. Well, that's pretty much James Hillman's position. A Jungian position is that there are structures in your psyche. You can discover what they are. You can discover, and this is what this whole workshop's about. These are the assumptions. There are structures. You can discover what they are. You can discover how different persons' egos relate to those structures thereby resulting in different patterns of behavior and values in their life, different problems, different symptoms in their life. And so if you, if you buy a pretty centrist Jungian point of view, then the assumption is that you are not, you know, when you're doing therapy with someone, you're not reinventing the wheel every time you go into a consulting room and that that ego of that person has to just kind of make it up as they go. There is something human. There are human structures. And if you have some understanding of these, you can look at this person's life and the way they are functioning and you can get some sense about how they are dysfunctional in terms of the basic blueprints. You see, if that's true, it's very important. Now, if it's not true, then uh, you know we can go uh, participate with other schools of thought that don't think there is anything in the wiring, in the hard wiring. See, we can think about this in terms of computer ease. You know, from a Jungian point of view, these structures that we're going to talk about today are not in the software. These structures are in the hardware. They're in the they're in the 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 disk drive. I mean, they're in the main drive of the computer. And since we're human, we're not going to do away with that. And that is a fundamentally Jungian point of view, and if one doesn't buy that, in my view, they are not Jungian. They have something else, but they're not Jungian. They may claim to be Jungian, but if they don't buy that assumption, they are not. Uh, or the language doesn't mean anything. And I'm one, you know, I was a philosophy professor before I was a psychoanalyst. And theory and words and concepts make, you know, they make they make differences. And what this is one of the main things that's important for us to get. 
It's important when you're working with people to know what you think. Because your conceptions, your theories, contain enormous value commitments. And there's no such thing as a value-free psychotherapy. Whoever you go to is selling you a package deal. <laughs> we need to be clear about that. So uh, what we want to do this morning is I'm going to lay out what, to me, is a elaboration of a sort of a, a, a Jungian understanding of the archetypal self and what it, what it carries in its blueprints. We're not going to talk about ego so much at first. We're just going to talk about the blueprints. Then we'll start talking about what happens when the ego accesses one of these more than the others or has difficulty in getting in touch with one of these or gets to mainlining, shooting up one of them. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try to understand how you get crazy. The different ways you get crazy if you get too much or too little of each one of these. Okay. Okay. Now let's let me stop there and and let you raise the question. Go. Yeah. Didn't Jung talk about sudden differentiate itself? And does that mean that the hardware was not formed, or was that for differentiation and individuation? Or that would be when Jung speaks of lack of differentiation it's really a term that has to do with the ego not the self see I mean if you think of the self as undifferentiated that's more of a Freudian concept and where self has a little s self meaning something like ego for Freudians um, when Jung talks about the archetypal self he is talking about something that parallels what Christians used to talk about, and some do that know anything about the history of the church, the imago Dei, the image of God in the psyche, in the self. So the archetypal self, you think about the image of God, it's like a stamp on the human personality. That's the image they used to use the metaphor. There's a stamp, there's a signature on the psyche, uh, the imago Dei. Well, that's a structure. That's, that's, a, that, that's not all over the place that is an image an image is a pattern and so for Jung's from Jung's basic point of view when you're speaking of the self itself you're speaking of objective psyche that has structures in fact it is the archetype of order it is the archetype of structure in the personality and so when you speak of the undifferentiated self you're really talking more about the lack of differentiation of the of the individual human person the ego from the fundamental foundations of the self. See, when you're, when you're an infant, according to Jungian thought, you're not differentiated from the ego. The I is not differentiated from the archetypal self. This is where Edward Edinger's writings are good. You want to get Edinger's book called Ego and Archetype, and he lays this out beautifully in there. He's got some charts. You can just look at the charts, and it shows how when you're, when you're an infant, you don't know the difference between yourself, your ego, and the big S self. You think you're the same thing. And then you run into a bad mother. <laughs> and that begins the process of learning that you are not God. Because if I were God, she would come exactly when I wanted her. <laughs> and I wouldn't have to throw any fits. See? So uh, we'll talk later. I'll give you some parallels with the, with the psychoanalytic school of self-psychology on this, where they talk about the importance of optimal frustration 
in development. And slow, slow disappointments, non, as non-traumatic as possible, disappointments in the child or in the adult that's still a child. And you let them down, I like to think, you let them down from their high chair slowly, <laughs> gently. Because see, when you're identified with the archetypal self, you're Her Majesty the baby, His Majesty the baby. They're little crowns. You see this a lot in iconography, you know, Mary, you know, you got Mary holding the little Jesus with his little crown. That's really us. <laughs> but you got to let him down so you can be human. That's incarnation, psychologically speaking. See, the hard part, they, the Christians told us that is this getting incarnated is, is rough. <laughs> and, and see, whether Christianity is true theologically or not, I'll leave to the theologians. But this stuff about incarnation and crucifixion and all that stuff is true psychologically. Because you've got to come down to the human level. And if, you, if they drop you, the interesting thing is and there's a lot more, we know a lot more about this in psychoanalysis, not just Jungian psychoanalysis, but in the different schools of psychoanalysis today. We know a lot more about this process than we did even 20 years ago. Thanks to the work of Heinz Kohut, one of the great Chicago analysts that died uh, a few years ago, uh, we know a lot more about the plumbing of the way this stuff works. The Jungians are not great at plumbers. Uh, they, they're better with these grand scales things, but, uh, but we like to include, you know, uh, some people that have some sensation function once in a while. And the Freudians are better at sensation function. Now, they got the plumbing of this down. And, and one of the things that you need to know is that when you, when you drop the baby a little bit, when you're letting them down, boy or girl, the, the, the God self doesn't disappear. In other words, if you, if you bring a child down too fast and too hard, by, or if you leave them up there by pampering them, if you leave them up there by pampering them, they still maintain their identification with the God self. If you drop them by abusing them or neglecting them, it doesn't disappear. The God claims go into the shadow. The God claims go into the unconscious. Now, that's important for you to remember because this afternoon we're going to be dealing <coughs> with the residual God and goddess in men and women and why that messes up their relationships. Relationship problems are God problems. <laughs> the problem of knowing who is God and who is not God. See, because relationship problems are almost all. There may be some exceptions. I never saw one. There may be some exceptions, but they're almost all problems of divinity. Bogus claims to divinity <laughs> on the part of men and women who is still on the high chair but do not know it. <laughs> or if they do not know it, I mean, if they do know it, they think they are entitled. The Adlerians, the Adlerians always use the concept of entitlement. And they're right about it. See, you can take Adlerian psychology, if you understand Adlerian psychology, and you can see it, you can just kind of take it and put it right down on top of what we're talking about today. They understand all this stuff. What the, what the Jungian would call the archetypal self, or I like to say the great self, or the God self, or the goddess self. The Adlerians call the superiority complex. The Adlerians say behind all psychopathology, all inferiority complexes, there is a superiority complex. They think you can get rid of the superiority complex. 
Jungians know better. <laughs> the superiority complex Jungians know is in the hardware. You can't get rid of the superiority organization. The superiority organization is the archetypal self. The only thing you can change is your relationship to it. You can't do away with it. The Freudians have the same mistaken idea that the Adlerians do. They think if you have enough analysis, now get this, I want to, I want to present just a little idea from, from contemporary psychoanalytic self-psychology. They think that if I work at this, I can transmute, this is the technical phrase, I can transmute and internalize the great self. That is, I can get rid of my grandiosity. I can fundamentally, I can get, if I can't get totally rid of it, at least I can get it to where it won't be a problem anymore much. Again, Jungian, uh, a Jungian point of view would not accept that. You cannot get rid of this God imago or God complex in the psyche. It is the archetypal self. It's in the hardware. You can't get rid of it. The only thing you can do is to become conscious and aware of the way you relate to it. Yes? How about the Winnicottian concept of the true self? The true self that can also, in, in the true self is much more a concept which corresponds structurally to the Jungian concept of a mature ego. When it's mature. When it's mature. When it has. So the true self is a human self. It's not a God self. It's the self like real it is the realized human, fully cohesive individual human personality in, in Freudian psychoanalytic terms. So one of the main things you've got to get when you're dealing with these comparative psychoanalytic theories is when the Jungian speaks of the self with a capital S, they're talking about the archetypal self, not the human personality self with a little s. True or not true. See, they're talking about a an instinctual pattern in the deep psyche, yes. If you're part of God or the true self or whatever it is, how can you have an imperfect ego coming from that creation of the hardware? Well, okay, that's what we, we, we'll get into that. You see, uh, just let's just keep this psychological. I'm just saying that in, in history of religions, you always, there. if you'll study the history of religions, you will notice that in most traditions there is a sense of the great self. Uh, in, I've said that in Christianity you've got the Imago Dei. In Buddhism, in certain forms of Buddhism, you have the true man of no rank within. Zen. That's the great self. Uh, and Hinduism, you have the concept of Purusa, or you have the, the great person within, or you have the concept of the Brahman, see, which is the great person. And you have yourself, your human self is the more the Atman not the Brahman. So we've got in the history, in fact, the way that we, we need, what needs to be done in terms of scholarship is we need to bring together and put them together in one book all of these, as many as possible of these examples from the human spiritual traditions to show that this, that this distinction between the human I and the great self is species-wide. You see this in every tradition, the distinction between the I the legitimate human eye and my great self.
the human Robert and the great Robert. You know, the magic Robert. You know. And so when you're doing this comparative psychoanalytic theory, you do not want to confuse anybody who's talking about a self with a little s, with, even if they're talking about the true self. If they're talking about the true self with a little s, they're talking about the healthy, mature, vibrant, uh, passionate human person. See, they're not talking about what Jung is talking about. See, none of the other theories have a concept like this. That's the thing. You've got to be clear that no other psychological theory has an understanding of an archetypal self as blueprint for the psyche. Okay. Yes? Is it possible for the great Robert to be incarnated this side of the veil? No. The great, what, what you've got to understand, fundamental Jungian theory, if you start trying to embody the great, what's your name? Sally. <coughs> if you try to incarnate the great Sally, this side of the veil, you get crazy. You get very crazy. And what is this? That, 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 that's bad news enough. But the really bad news is that you can get crazy in these different ways. And see, one of the things that there are a number of ways in which I think Jungian thought is superior to Freudian thought, but, one, but one, here's one of the ways. If you follow, say, contemporary psychoanalytic self-psychology, they understand about the grandiose self-organization. They have a whole elaborate understanding of the grandiosity in the psyche, and I love it. It's really useful. It's really helpful. And in some ways, it's much clearer than Jungian discussions of this. They have an understanding that if you, that if you are like the rest of us, you probably have a struggle with your grandiosity. And if you don't know you're grandiose, you probably got an enormous struggle with your grandiose. <laughs> this is the fundamental understanding of psychoanalytic self-psychology. In other words, in psychoanalytic self-psychology, and you can see how this parallels Jungian thought, you need to become conscious of your grandiosity, and you need to befriend it with humor. <laughs> what I love to see is somebody like there's this wonderful self-psychologist here in town, one, I think one of the best. I was at a conference with him just recently. Uh, Arnold Goldberg, and he got up uh, before the group trying to model this, trying to help people by modeling the relationship to grandiosity that they want you to get. So he was saying, oh, I feel so much better with you looking at me. <laughs> you know? Gee, it really, you know, I feel more complete now. You know, I feel, you know, this, this is better. Oh, then, you know, you nod your head very well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> this is, you know, I feel very mirrored. I, I feel very, you know, valued. And, and Goldberg is so wonderful, he has such a great sense of humor that he plays this with the audience, you know. And, and you really get a sense of their acceptance of the grandiosity that we've all got in the psyche. We've all got it, we all need, we all need it mirrored, we all need it stroked. And uh, rather than trying to make out like we don't have it, and just being, and just being chronically depressed, the, the psychoanalytic self-psychologist out of the cohesion school try to get you to become conscious of it and befriend it. You start using it for con creative and constructive things. That, in that way, they are very close to Jungians. They're getting very close to a Jungian position when they get to that place. Uh, so, uh, but the point is, they, above all, are very clear. You must take a stand against your grandiosity. Because if you don't take a stand against it, it will destroy you. Yes. 
Could he answer his question and still not uh, step on Jungian psychology by saying that uh, we are flawless in our imperfections? We are flawless in our imperfections. What would that mean? That the stamp, that the God stamp says that you're human. I mean, it's one and the same. Uh, in this it would be nice if that were the case. <laughs> but the problem is. Uh, trying to embody this great God self in a human personality is like trying to pour the ocean uh, into a cup. And uh, what happens is we'll get into compulsive behavior. See, when you've got a compulsive behavior, you've got somebody that's trying to embody the God self in some way. See. Compulsions, when you see them, are attempts to deal, to control all this enormous, what a Jungian would call, archetypal energy. You've got to understand that from a Jungian point of view, now whether you, by a Jungian point of view, is not, not the issue. The, the, from a Jungian point of view, though, this archetypal self is loaded with numinous, powerful energy, hot energy. And if you've ever seen anybody in a manic phase of a psychosis, uh, you know what that's like. Or if you've ever been uh, if you've ever been so turned on and overstimulated by something that when you were trying to get ready to go to bed and go to sleep and you, you're so, we can we say wired, I'm wired, I cannot go to sleep, my mind is racing, that energy right there, uh, Jungian would point to and say, well, you're plugged in to this archetypal energy here. See, you're, uh, a Cohusian would say you're overstimulated, but a Jungian would say, would, would think about, that's true, you're overstimulated, but you've got to understand What's going on here? You're plugging into higher voltage than your wiring and your circuit breakers are designed to take. So you have got to work, get your transformers working to get that voltage down to 110. And you've got to get your switches working so that when it's time to go to bed and go to sleep at night, you can go click. And you can shut that enormous surge of energy down. Or some of you may have these PCs. You know that little thing that you plug your PC into? You know that little thing that's supposed to control the surges so that the power surges don't blow your computer? That's a psychological parallel to this process. When we speak of developing a mature ego, we are talking about getting to the point that indeed you can plug into these powerful energy sources, but you can regulate that energy flow in such a way that it doesn't create system problems for you. It doesn't blow out any circuits. It doesn't cause you to uh, burn up any wires. It doesn't cause you to anybody to get electrocuted. See? So it's a ima the image and metaphors of this type of thing is ima are they're images of regulation. That's the important thing to realize. Now again, up to this point, contemporary cohesion self-psychologists in the Freudian tradition would, you know, they, they can go this far. You've got to learn to act, to, to accept the fact that you have this, this uh, uh, grandiosity in the psyche. Say, for example, uh, in your career, we'll get into this. This would be career stuff is located more in the warrior mode. Say, in your career, you have just received a promotion, and now your vistas have opened up wider. You thought you would never make it, maybe except to maybe, maybe vice president. 
but you just got a promotion earlier than you thought. And now, aha, you're lying there in bed and you're thinking about what might be possible now. See? And rather than just resting comfortably and joyfully in my promotion to vice president, now my mind is racing. Now I might become president. President of IBM. See, whatever. So, in other words, every time you achieve something, the grandiose self in you wants more. This is why, this is how you can understand that no matter how many books you've written, you always should have written ten more. See, no matter how many editions uh, uh, on your house, you either need another edition on the house, another new kitchen, or another house. See? Or no matter what kind of car you got, there's always one that's nicer, you know. I mean, unless you've got the latest Ferrari. You're not equating the great self with the co-less grandiose self. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. The grandiose self isn't lesser than the great self. It's not an aspect of the great self. Well, let's put it this way. <coughs> you can't really put one to one between any psychoanalytic theory. But if you want to understand this in a way that's helpful to women, all these people they try to equate cohen self, you know, the cohesive self, with the archetypes that are totally wrong. It's totally wrong. Clinically, you have to understand, we put it this way. Adverse superiority complex, Kohut's grandiose self-organization, grandiose exhibitionistic self-organization, and Jung's archetypal self, clinically, phenomenologically parallel. Now, they're not the same idea. And I think the Jungian idea is far more inclusive and far more balanced than any of the others. But when you're looking at clinical phenomena, what you've got to understand is when you're dealing with somebody that's really arrogant, you're dealing with an arrogant, you're dealing with somebody that has a massive superiority complex. If you're, if you're dealing from a collusion point of view, you're dealing with somebody who is not able to regulate their grandiosity. They're probably not even very aware of their grandiosity. They are being completely driven by their grandiosity. And you have got to help them take a stand against their grandiosity. Mark, from a Jungian point of view, the art they're identifying unconsciously with the archetype itself, and they're becoming inflated. They're parallel phenomenological and clinical concepts. You can't equate them at the theoretical level. But clinically, which is what is where people live. See, what I'm trying to say is Jungian thought is extremely useful practically, clinically. And that's where you need to see all this talk about the archetypal self. You know, there are people that think this archetypal self is friendly. A lot of unions have been taught that the archetypal self is just friendly, it just has your best interest in mind, it's super duper nice guy just like the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. Whoever taught you that didn't know Jung's work. Because Jung is clear, it is not always friendly. And the, ups, the absolutely important, and this is an assumption for this workshop, the absolutely important thing for you to do is to take a stand against it first. Then you start trying to develop a friendly relationship where you as the ego are taking a clear stance against the archetypal self. You do not want to assume it has your human best interest in mind. And that is the thing, the way you have to, the thing that your assignment is for that is to get clear about the way in which the archetypal self, clinically speaking, in your actual life, can burn you up if you let it in these different ways. It, it doesn't burn everybody up in the same way. If you have a king inflation or a queen inflation, it will burn you up mothering everybody else. 
taking care of everybody else. And it will burn you completely up. And we'll see what happens to your sex life. There won't be any until you fragment. If it is dominating you in the warrior mode, it will burn you up in terms of goal-directed behaviors, achievement orientation. It will constantly expand the agenda for you to achieve. If you have got a warrior inflation out of the archetypal self, it will, it's what I call, uh, in me, I like to call it my, my warrior monk. See, my warrior monk, I'm Protestant, but I got a Jesuit inside. <laughs> you know, if I'd been Catholic, I would have been in the Jesuit order, and my mother would have wanted me to be the head of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm still kind of confused. If I were the image of God, why wouldn't I have a regulator on my hardware that would. You are not the image of God. Let's, let's get that clear. You have in your psyche. A pattern called the God Imago, or the God Complex, or the Archetypal Self, which can be said to be by religious people, you know, the Imago day. But we're just talking psychology. What you've got, and you see this clearly, uh, the more inflated people are, what you've got is this Messianic King or Messianic Queen in there. And it isn't you. That's the important thing to get clear about. That is the radically important thing to get clear about. You have got this messianic king and, or messianic queen, or actually both, inside you. This gets us to, the, to, to Jung's concept of the conjunctio. It's a nice, fancy word. Mysterium conjunctionis, which means the... the the mystical marriage or the sacred marriage, the hieros gamas is another way you see it written. The hieros gamas, the sacred marriage. And it is in alchemy, you know, the rex and the regina. You see all the, you open up the books on alchemy, you see the king, the queen, the bath, all that stuff. Well, from a Jungian point of view, the archetypal self is imaged in that royal couple. That's an image of your deepest self structure. Now notice something about that. Got puzzle looks here now. Okay. You read this in Marion Woodman. She's right about this. You, if you look closely in Jung, you see it. He doesn't elaborate this as clearly as he should have. But if you look closely, the archetypal self, the deepest self, is not male or female. It is both. This is where Freud and Jung agree. The deepest human self is bisexual. At the deepest instinctual level. So you got this royal couple inside you at the deepest level in the hardware. The king and queen in their fullness. See, in these traditions around the world, you study, I've been doing a lot of work on this type of thing. You get the great king god and the great queen goddess. Some traditions hold them up in consciousness. The more matriarchal you get, you get, get this, and we'll see this played out this afternoon. You get the great queen goddess and her consort. <laughs> Consorts. <laughs> or you get the great king god. And he doesn't even have any consorts, right? 
in certain patriarchal traditions. I'm always amused. Uh, I'm always amused by these patriarchal traditions who think that God is perfect, indeed, but it, it's a male God. And I keep thinking, want to say to him, well, uh, uh, does this God never get lonesome or horny? <laughs> Uh, if he doesn't, I think he's less than human. See, and so if you look at God as an image of completeness, it would have God, the male side would have to have a equal female side for there to be wholeness. You see, at the psychological level. Now I'm not doing theology here, but uh, but anyway, in the psyche, whatever the theologians say, in the psyche, there is a king who has a queen who's fully is equal. And a queen who has a king who is fully her equal. And they have this relationship archetypally. This is the archetypal self within. Now, you notice what happens when the ego identifies with that. In terms of sexual problems, you get gender problems with gender identification. Because you start including all of the gender in yourself. You start having a fantasy of being complete in yourself. See, a lot of what is sold in popular magazines today as the way to be is an image of narcissistic possession states. Complete in yourself. The idea of being complete in yourself so that you have no need for relationship, that is an image of the conjunctio. We'll get into that a lot more, what happens. If you're really narcissistic enough, you don't need anybody. You feel, I don't need anybody. I withdraw into my grandiose isolation, and I don't need any relationships. And if they don't do what I want them to do, I will just drop them. See? Uh, so, <clears throat> anyway, so the understanding is that the archetypal self at its deepest level is not male or female. It carries both of these images. And the interesting thing is that it expresses itself in these different configurations. And if you study the history of culture, history of religions, history of mythology, you will notice that there are these different manifestations of the archetypal self. We've talked about the king and queen, and I want to go into a minute in a minute what that particular form of expression emphasizes. But there are four different expressions. And you can usually see this when you study gods. Now, Gene Boland, how many of you read Gene Boland's Goddesses in Every Woman and Gods in Every Man? Okay, if you study the gods, her books are very useful, very helpful. <clears throat> but one of the problems is that if you study gods as ways of getting at the archetypes, there's the same problem as looking at humans to get at the archetypes because they're more complicated. They're not one-sided totally. Gods have different expressions. And so you get Christ the King. And you get Christ, the uh, messianic uh, warrior in Revelation, the book of Revelation. And you get Jesus the magician uh, in Martin Smith's book, where he talks about Jesus as the great magician, see? Or Jesus the high priest, which is an image of the magician. Or you get Jesus the lover, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, see? And so in the traditions, you get the, the Godhead expressed in different forms. You get this in Hinduism. You get clear different expressions or incarnations of the gods in Hinduism manifest different aspects of divinity. You have 
the great Shiva as king. You also have expressions of him as in his warrior mode. And if you study the Hindu tradition carefully, each one of these configurations is highlighted at different places in the myth. If you study any particular tradition, you will find that the god has different forms that they manifest in. And what you will notice is it will be located somewhere in these different spaces. Is there any question about that before we go on? I'm going to tell you what the different configurations emphasize and what the different spaces are that they create in a minute. But yes? Uh, I have a question about when you were saying that you have to take a stand you know, yes. before, and then, then become in relationship to a particular part of yourself. My question is, um, when you were saying it, it sounded like you took it sound like a hostile kind of thing, and I don't think you meant that. No, no. But, but what I, and, and my other part is, you know, I suppose through culture, through uh, modeling with parents, through religion, one is uh, offered means to take a stand. I mean, because we, we seem to be, well, most of what we learn is kind of more limiting than it is. Yes. Than it is expansive. Except it isn't conscious. No, see, but the, we take it in. Yeah. I'm saying, does that, is that, is let me, let me respond to that because see, we need to talk about the way families operate in this because your family in the way that they treated the different children gave the different children different assignments, so to speak, as to what parts of these spaces in the psyche you have the ticket to. Different siblings in the same family don't get tickets to all these spaces. If you were the cute youngest, uh, do a little Adlerian thing here, if you were the cute, charming youngest child who was just always beautiful and charming and everybody's friend, you got a ticket to the lover space. It's one kind of ticket. There are lots of tickets. There are different tickets to the lover space. Uh, also, if they were so antagonistic towards sexuality in the home and you decided to go out and be a hooker, you got a ticket. They gave you the ticket to the lover's space. We can't stand all this sexuality that you're into. Take it and go do it from me. <laughs> family systems, you gotta think family systems. The family systems people understand this stuff, they just don't use this language. I'm just trying to give you a Jungian way of thinking about what the family systems people talk about. Okay, if they, if they said, oh, you're so smart, you know, by golly, straight A's. Wow, you know, you're really smart. You shouldn't be a workman. Oh, no, you shouldn't become a policeman. You shouldn't become a fireman. You should become a teacher or a professor if your mother's more ambitious. You get in this. Or, gee, you have such deep religious insights at age eight. You should become a priest. priest, magus, the one who, who has spiritual insight. Or, golly, what an athlete you are. Look at all those muscles. And dad holds the little boy up, and you know how they do that in some of our culture, hold him up and hits him in the stomach and say, look at that, wow, look at that, boy, that, that's a, really a chip off the old body. Well, he's good, well, he ought to be a pro football player, see? And so, you know, whatever, you know, he gets into some warrior kind of profession, see? 
He's selected. We all know he has no feelings, right? We all know he's stupid. He could never be a teacher. See, we all know he's stupid. Of course, his IQ is it may be higher than the teacher. He actually may have a very high IQ, but he's taught that he's kind of stupid and brawny. And then, gee, honey, you sure are helpful to mom and dad. You know, you know, this is great. You know, you you know, just help me take care of the family. You got assistant mother. You know, the little boys and girls who are assistant mothers here, and they become the little king and the little queen, and they live their life for all the other brothers and sisters. And every family, you can see one of them who's got the the role of being the one who makes sure that everybody's taken care of. One of the siblings who does all the phone calling, all the letter writing, keeps up with everybody, especially in large families. You see this like. But the family assigns. Now, what I wanted to point out was that's not conscious most of the time. And we don't even know what we've been, until we think about it. In other words, until we get our inner magician going and our awareness starts to rise, we don't ask the question, well, what archetypal configuration did my family program me for? And what archetypal configurations did they lead me to believe I wasn't wired for? You have all of these people who believe that they are one or the other of these and that they're not really wired, they're not really, you know, capable of, of doing the others. Yes? As you've been talking here about these four groupings, I have been picking up a strong feeling that you're almost getting into the area of typology. It's very related to typology. It's not exactly the same as typology. It's a very, she's raising the question, how is this related to typology? It seems to be. Well, you, I want you to be thinking about that. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship, but you can see that certain typology issues get manifest in this. If you tend to live your life as a magician, if you're a psychotherapist here, any psychotherapist here, see, if you if you function as a psychotherapist or clergy person, you may well live in this magician thing a lot. And you probably have a lot of intuition function in your typology. See? See? So there and there are other things. If you tend to be into or, into ordering things a lot, you probably have a lot of thinking uh, function. But it's not a one to one. You can you can you can see people that are organized in one of these things that the typology doesn't seem to fit. So it's not one to one, but they are uh, clearly related. Okay, now let me go through these briefly. Well, why don't we stand up and stretch your legs a minute and uh, take about five minutes to break? There's a couple of good good uh, comments and questions at break. Uh, they came up. One is how literal, and this is asked from a Hillmanian uh, archetypal psychology point of view. How literal do you mean these things? Well, I mean for you to see that they are deep structures like Chomsky means in deep structural linguistics. I mean to say that they really exist in a way that programs on a computer exist. Information, or does the information on a computer exist? Is a particular program, does it exist? Well, it exists as uh, systemic structures that are in information systems. And these things function very much like uh, in cybernetics. They are there as deep structures in the same type of way. You, you need to look at Anthony Stevens' book on archetypes and natural history of the self, and look at Noam Chomsky's work on linguistics and Levi, Levi Strauss's work on structural anthropology. Uh, this is a fundamental issue in the human sciences. 
the battle over this theoretically will go on forever. Uh, my point of view uh, is uh, fairly clearly expressed in an issue of Zygon, the Journal of Religion and Science, which I edited back in 1983, an issue on ritual and human adaptation, in which the uh, relationship between neurophysiology and uh, structures in physical anthropology and cultural anthropology were highlighted. There's an article in that. Let me just give you a reference on an article for you to look at. And that, I think it's October 1983, journal Zygon. <clears throat> and it's an essay by Victor Turner, uh, the great anthropologist, entitled Body, Brain, and Culture. And, and in that, it's an integrated essay relating neurophysiology and human cultural and cognitive structures. So I don't mean it to be literal. I know that that's not a good thing, right? We don't like literalists and fundamentalists. But I tell you, deconstructionism is exciting and fun. But when you're dealing with people, they tend to be chaotic enough. They, people tend to be chaotic enough. They need help in getting into some sort of healthy uh, personality functioning. And if you know, a lot of analysts, this is the problem with some analysts, they tend to work a lot with rich neurotics <laughs> who, who have a lot of structure, maybe too much structure. But if you ever work as a clinician with patient populations, which include a lot of borderlines and a lot of addictive personalities, you know that these people don't need deconstruction. <laughs> they are masters in deconstruction. <laughs> They're deconstructing everything in their worlds. They get a little more crack, you know. So uh, uh, I think it's important not to literalize in any kind of fundamentalist way, but it's very important to realize that when Jung said there were deep structures in the psyche that we had to understand and learn how to relate to, he meant it. And that is what makes a Jungian, in my view. Okay, let me go very fast and go through the particular environments that are the psychosocial environment that is created by each of these. Uh, I was also asked, are there places where you can read about this stuff? Uh, there is not too much that lays this out uh, very clearly right now. The, the tapes that are available from my lectures over the past few years at the Institute uh, do treat this. You can particularly, I have, man, I have uh, majored in masculine psychology. And we'll not get around to doing what Gene Bowman did for a while. Uh, but, I mean, I will later elaborate more about the feminine psyche in this context. But I do have a lot of stuff on tapes about the way this operates in the masculine personality. And you can extrapolate a lot of it. It's not exactly the same in the feminine personality. And we can talk about some of the differences later. But uh, you can get my tapes on this. And, and, and in the spring, the, the, inter the first volume of a five-volume series on masculine psychology will come out with Harper and Lowe. Uh, entitled Boy Psychology, Man Psychology, which is an elaboration of immature expressions of this in a man and mature expressions of it. And then after that, in the next two years, there will be a volume on each of these, volume on the king, volume on the warrior, volume on the magician, volume on the lover and masculine personality. They're all under contract. They should be out in no, no more than, uh, we hope, no more than three years. The first volume will come out this spring. So uh, until then, the stuff is available on tapes, basically. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> let me run through these different spaces. Now, I said in the verb in this that there are different environments. And I don't want to belabor phenomenology here. But one of the genius 
uh, uh, one of the things of genius that the phenomenologists have, have given us in philosophy is helping us to understand that the human mind experiences space radically differently. That there is not just one space that people live in. I mean, you may think uh, you may think it's all one space, but once you start studying the human mind carefully, you understand that there are various types of spaces that people live in, and you yourself know this at the intuitive level, but you may not have given it too much theoretical thought. But for example, when you're getting ready to make love, if you're really getting into it, if you're really turned on, the environment you're in is not the same as when you're changing diapers. <laughs> it is not the same space. There is not the same perceptual style. There's not the same experience of the body. There's not the same experience of time. So just as I'm saying there's different spaces, it's totally different experience of time. Okay, let me start with, with how the king and the queen and you, what, what that part of you is about, what it's for, and how it experiences. The king and the queen and you are the archetypal bases for order, creativity, blessing, generativity. You, people will often say that the king is an expression of the father archetype. I think that's totally backwards. Human fathers are poor imitations of the archetype of the king. And we all know it because we all see the flaws of our father. See, what are we comparing our perception of our father with? We're comparing our perception of our father with the archetypal king that we are plugged into in the unconscious. And the same thing we do with our mothers. We compare our mothers to the great mother who is really the great queen in the unconscious. And we compare her and we say, you don't pass. <laughs> I, you know, in the fairy tales, you know what we do with this in the fairy tales? I really am not your child. <laughs> My parents were the king and queen. And when they had trouble in the kingdom, they took me and they put me in your house, the house of the woodchopper. <laughs> and I'm really a prince. And I'm not really your child. That's the way we all feel. <laughs> if you look in folklore, you find this motif everywhere. I mean, it's amazing, cross-culturally. You find this motif of the orphan, the abandoned child. You know, either the abandoned child that didn't have another home, or the abandoned child that's in the wrong home. Well, it's related to this, in, this deep relationship to this royal couple within the royal parents. The real ones that could have done it better. <laughs> could have done what better? Well, they would have made a better home. See, the word cosmos, is something you've got to get clear of. You read Iliadi. Iliadi's work is very good on this mythically if you can make your way through it. It's kind of hard going. But he talks about cosmos in his work. Cosmos is a world. It's not just any <laughs> world, though. In mythic terms, a cosmos is a ordered world. It is not ordered in an oppressive way. Cosmos is a world which is ordered in the right way. It is just. It is full of joy. Everything blooms in cosmos. You've heard of the, you've heard of the archetype of paradise? The golden age? 
at the beginning of time, the, the paradise at the end of time. That is cosmos. It is an expression of the archetype of cosmos. In the mythology of human beings, it's just amazing. What you've got is right at the center of the world. That's what Iliadi calls the oxus mundi, the center of the world. There sits what? Guess what? Two thrones in mythology. If you get back to the oldest mythology, the, the center of the world, there are two thrones. Later on, one of, them, one of the thrones disappears a little later on. Very interesting. But, it, but and where I recommend that you look at this is in Egyptian mythology. Go back to the ancient Egyptian mythology. You get two thrones there. And this is, think about Christian mythology. What is this place in Christian mythology or Judeo-Christian tradition? If you think about this as, as the mythic space of Judeo-Christian tradition or even Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, what is this place? Jerusalem. You bet it's Jerusalem. You bet it. And it's Golgotha. The cross is the center. It is the tree, the sacred tree. See, archetypally speaking, the sacred tree at the center of the world is the same thing as the throne at the center of the world. And so in Christian mythology, when Christ is on the cross, there is a motif in there that Christ is on a throne. That is a throne. In fact, that's what you have to understand about the true king. The true king and the true queen are always sacrificial by their very nature. They're always giving by their very nature. In other words, those people that would view Jesus as having been victimized don't understand the archetype. Because if you study the archetype of the king in, in all cultures, the king is always sacrificial. There's no such thing as a king that is not sacrificial. And I think the same thing is true in the archetype of the queen. Although in patriarchal culture, we've managed to destroy as much as possible of the lore of the queen. It's very difficult to get back to the archetypal lore around the queen. We've not had enough. This is one of the places where I think the feminist scholars in this country have not put enough attention to retrieving the lore of the queen. And it's very interesting. I have an idea about why that is. Because a lot of radical feminists are centered here. You see that? You I'm serious. I'm not joking. If you're a radical feminist and you're centered here, then you must be in a fight with the women in the country who value motherhood. You see? That is to say, people, look, you look at the, the, the conflict over the ERA. That was an archetypal conflict between the women who were more centered here in their personality. I'm not saying balance, but they were centered here and the women who were centered here. And so they didn't understand that, you know, sisterhood is powerful. You know, we've got all, we've got to include all these archetypal configurations, see. So you, you didn't get the ERA passed because of different conflicts in archetypal configurations with feminine. And this is something that is eating, it eats up contemporary world culture. We have got to get to the point to where we can see that if you're going to have a full feminine, all of these have to be included. Just as if you're going to have a full masculine, all of these have to be included. And the only instrument 
for doing that is a maturing human ego. Because the only thing that is capable of seeing one-sidedness is a maturing ego. Now, I'm going to anticipate a little bit about this afternoon stuff. But one of the interesting things is, if you don't understand this, certain people look a lot healthier than they really are. And in our culture, workaholism is rewarded. Careerism, workaholism is rewarded. And if I'm a workaholic and I have a, and I take my compulsiveness out in work instead of alcohol, cocaine, or sex, see, then I don't get referred. <laughs> you know? And I start rising to the top in my career. Of course, my family life goes to hell. And if you have eyes to see, if you understand compulsive behavior, if you understand it and you're looking at me, you can tell I'm not all that healthy. You can see how driven I am. You can see how helpless I am in the face of my warrior archetype and how I can't do anything other than live this out. It's not that I'm so ambitious. I think I'm ambitious. But I am so out of touch with these other things in me. I really think I am the warrior with a capital W. See that? Okay. So anyway, this space is centeredness, source of calmness, Here's a little key to work on. If you have a high anxiety level, the connection with this is not right. This is the archetypal basis for dealing with anxiety. If a person carries a high anxiety level or, and manifests in any form of compulsive behavior, their connection in this configuration is weak. We'll get into that more later. But what do you get? If a person is able to mirror, if you use Kohut's language, if a person is able to mirror other people, to recognize them, to see them, to nurture them, to be a good mentor, they are connected in a positive way with this archetypal structure. If they want to be adored and admired predominantly by their students or their spiritual directees or their parishioners, the flow is reversed. In other words, you are identifying with this archetype and you're in the position of the divine child. Adore me. You see that? The shadow expression of the king and queen is the divine child in the manger on the throne. Yes? I'm having trouble understanding how these four relate to well, the that's what, of the They are all within it. Contained within the Kinyumtia. So are you saying that the self is comprised of these four yes. periods? They are comprised of these eight. Period. Period. Okay. I've never heard anything like this. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you have okay. But I will I will suggest to you if you will look at Jung's work, this is consistent with Jung's work. It's it's an it's an elaboration of it, but if you'll look in his work, you'll find his discussions of the Wise old man stuff, that's the magician. You'll see his discussion of King, although Jung didn't talk much about King. He had too many father problems. 
<coughs> one of the places he and Jung, uh, he and Freud had problems about. It. Freud wanted to talk about the father. Jung didn't deal too too much with that stuff. And if you listen to uh, the lectures that have been done recently uh, <coughs> by uh, John Dowerly, one of the Jungian analysts from Canada, who's analyzed Jung's relationship with his father. Uh, you can have a little sense about why Jung may have not elaborated the archetype of the king too much, but he does discuss it. If you get in the 20th volume, you only get in the, the directory, the, the index, and look in there and see how much Jung refers to each of these, because he does refer to different forms of each of them. Yes? It seems like I've always heard yourself so large, there's no way of finding uh, an image is contained that contains like everything. Well, the self, if you equate, see, that's fuzzy. It, it gets fuzzy. You know, if you study, if you study it, it gets very fuzzy. But it's not always fuzzy. If you look in Jung, it's always the archetype of order. And there are, there are different expressions of the archetypes. And the gods always are expressions of some aspect of the self. I mean, that is one thing that's quite clear. That, that you're talking about some divine kind of energy. And all of these divine energies are grounded in the archetype itself. And the archetype itself is complete. Jung talks about it, get this word. You don't see this too much in introductory psychology textbooks. But you get this word, pleroma. You heard that in Jungian thought, the pleroma. It just means fullness. The fullness of the human psyche is represented here. There are more things in the unconscious than these. I mean, they're all, our, everything is archetypal from the human point of view. But in terms of the way in which the human personality is structured, you get the, this is not all of it, but this is sort of an outline. This is sort of an architectonic that you can, that you can understand. Let me go through them and then you can, you'll, you'll be able to see it like more clearly, I think. Okay. So centeredness, right order, connection with creativity, capacity to bless and nurture, to, to nurture an environment with creations. So if you're into being a creator, an artist or something, you need some of this. Okay. In this archetypal configuration, you always get cosmos against chaos. If you study the ancient geographies, this is all laid out in the ancient geography because the world is seen as round, the holy city is at the center, and the infidels are on the outskirts trying to come in. And you take any, any, in fact, one of the interesting things, a lot of the interesting work on this is being done by geographers now, because they're studying the history of cities. See, it's no accident that at the heart of the city are all the tall skyscrapers. That's archetypal. Skyscrapers, see? It's this whole thing that in the city, that you get all this energy concentrated in the center of the city, and you can do all this stuff with with uh, with contemporary architecture and contemporary city planning and all this. That all these scholars are into this stuff now. They just they've just gotten sophisticated enough about cultural geography to see how this is played out. You get this sacred geography, and the center is the throne, or thrones, the king, queen. Now, in this second configuration, in the warrior, the warriors have to defend the cosmos against chaos. So if you want to understand 
the way in which the whole warrior archetype in the human psyche operates, it is always experiencing an enemy. If you're in this space, there's an enemy somewhere. Paranoid personalities, paranoid personalities, the, the, what Theodore Milan calls the active independent personality, what we call sociopaths, the enemy. There's always, you're suspicious, you're paranoid, there's an enemy, and if I haven't got one, I'll create one. Uh, a lot of violent, aggressive behavior in this when it's in, a, when it's in a negative form. Notice, I put the warrior couple on this side because the plane is a plane of battle, and you see this archetypally in all traditions, right? The plane of Armageddon. It's, you see it so much. If you study the literature of the apocalypse, and in the next 10 years, you're going to hear a lot about the end of the world and spiritual warfare and final battles. Uh, Khomeini was eaten up with this, and he recreated this space between Iran and Iraq. The world as Khomeini experienced it was Khomeini the divine warrior serving Allah against, what's the guy's name in uh, Iraq anyway, the guy, the, 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 the president of Iraq who was representing evil. And so Iran had to battle Iraq at all costs. It's one of the things about the warrior. The warrior will complete his or her mission no matter what the cost because the mission is everything. The warrior has the potential and the personality for organization, planning, in religious terms, vocation. If you don't have a sense of your vocation, you don't have a sense of the warrior configuration. In other words, if you don't know what your assignment is, you cannot be a warrior. Let's see. Yes? Is it completing a mission um, for the process of the mission or for the goal? It's for the goal. In other words, this thing exists in there to help the human being. I think the, the sort of the, you have to think about the evolutionary reason this thing's in there. Because, because it is the archetypal configuration with it, which allows a human personality to do what is necessary to defend life. See, if chaos encroaches too much, you don't get enough to eat. You know, this is a hunter. This is the person that is able to go into the northern European section and farm. You know, you know, it, it, it is the it is the part of the personality which resources the capacity to stand pain in, for gold. It is the part that enables you to focus. You know, the gentleman's thing on focusing. It's it's about this. Do what? It, it, focusing. That is to say, you've got to be able to to. We say, get yourself together. You know, you've got to be able to focus. You've got to be able to be aware of the task. You've got to be able to survey the terrain. You've got, you think about this in terms of uh, what I've done with my study of this is to study the history of generals, the way they think, because that's where you see it most clearly. And, and a general, see, it's not a foot soldier, because a foot soldier is not fully developed in this. The general surveys the entire terrain. They know what the situation is. You've got reconnaissance. You, you, you scope out the situation, you assess your resources. How many divisions do I have? How many tanks do I have? How many planes do I have? You assess the enemy's strengths. You make decisions about where you will attack and where you won't attack. It's a planning, strategic evaluation, planning, 
tactical assessments, tactical decisions, monitoring of resources, capacity to stand losses in the service of a goal. And in terms of the psyche, the archetypal basis of this, there's always got to be a transpersonal reason. In other words, it's not egoism at all. This is the archetypal configuration in the psyche which makes possible fidelity. In fact, you could say this is the archetype of faithfulness. And we'll see this afternoon. If you don't have a lot of warrior in you, you will not be faithful in a relationship. It's very interesting. None of the other archetypal configurations in the psyche have any wiring for faithfulness. So I get all these people that say to me in my sessions, but Bob, she's so good looking. <laughs> she really turns me on. If I were really in love, I mean, if I were really in love with my wife, I wouldn't feel this way about her. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. See, because the archetypal lover in you wants to lick everything it sees. <laughs> Sorry, it's the way it is, that's true. And it isn't embarrassing about it. The part of you that's laughing at me is not the lover. Because the lover in you understands that perfectly well. Perfectly well. Some of us left our lovers behind when we were licking mom's hand or something. But you see, the archetypal lover at the archetypal level, get this now, the archetypal lover in you is promiscuous. It loves everybody and everything. You would say from a moralistic standpoint, it's, it, it is indiscriminate. It would say it's inclusive. <laughs> the archetypal in love, lover in you loves everything and everybody, and it's into experiencing it directly. And so when somebody comes to me in analysis and says, you know, if I was really in love with my wife, I wouldn't be so turned on by her. I smile, you know, I've heard this about a thousand times, you know. Uh, sorry, it's not true. You have to get enough, if you want to have a marriage, you have to get enough of the warrior. What does the warrior do? The warrior de defends cosmos, what is being built. In other words, in a relationship, if you really have a relationship, you're trying to build something. If you're trying to build something, you've got to understand that chaotic aspects will always intrude. Always. There will never be a time that they will not intrude. What is the role of the warrior in the psyche? The role of the warrior in the psyche is always to defend a just order and the building of world, building of cosmos, or you would say family. Home. What is the state of the warrior in our society today? It is manifest chiefly in shadow warrior forms. Boy warrior, I call it. We got loads of boy warriors on this planet. They deal drugs to children. And they're heavily armed. But they're not mature warriors. Because mature warriors protect children. That's what they're for. Okay. Mature, the mature warrior function in the psyche of a man or a woman is to defend those who are defenseless. And you see, this, when this starts, you need to ask yourself, how do these things manifest in their shadow or immature forms? Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see a lot more about that this afternoon. Yes. Can you elaborate on the Yes. If you are, if you're, if you're mainlining too much warrior energy, if that's the way you connect with the archetypal self predominantly, you will be very obstreperous. 
And in your relationships with people at work and in the home, you will be fighting a lot. And if you're not fighting, you're, you're bristling. You know, it's like the research, the research on uh, uh, sociopathic personalities, active independent personalities, shows that they have gotten strokes for bristling. And they may even have a muscular structure that, you know, they may be uh, sort of built up physically in such a way that it's easier for them to threaten physically. In fact, people start very, very early ages, boys who are very physically powerful start getting strokes for being able to intimidate. And uh, so you begin to get this warrior stuff, cons you know, rewarded. You look at the sports system, see. Uh, and uh, what will happen is that this individual will get into, can easily without appropriate nurture and, and education, psychological education, not knowing what all that stuff is for, a boy can get into ego, egoistic, total egoistic uses of that. And then you get the man who is totally aggressive without any limit, and of which our society around the world is eaten up. I mean, we've got, we major in turning out men who have no sense of limits on their aggression. I don't know whether you've seen that, uh, I don't know whether you've seen that recent feminist book <clears throat> called The Demon Lover. Have you seen that? Her book, she's a very angry feminist theoretician, and what she is describing, I totally agree with. She's describing the shadow, the, the immature expression of the warrior in males. She, there's no question whatsoever that she's correct. Around the world, there's a crisis in masculinity in which most of the masculine archetypal potential is being expressed in immature form. And what she, what she talks about in the Demon Lover book is just a clear description of the the, the male is terrorist, you know, and that's what we've got here. But that's not, that's not, that is the immature expression of it. And in a mature male or a mature female, the expression of this side of the personality is to defend just order, make a world where creativity can occur, civilization can be developed. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org.